0: Good morning, I want to start today's sermon with a confession, I have been listening to Christmas music, I was expecting more gasps, we need, yeah, right, not only that, I have a carefully curated playlist of Christmas music that is currently 24 hours and one minute long comprising of 443 songs, none of which are pentatonics. And I will stand by that. Uh, And when I say Christmas music, I don't mean Fernando Ortega. I mean the cheesy, goofy, Mariah Carey and Michael Buble wrap-me-up-in-tinsel kind of playlist. Our house is decorated with lights that have been programmed with smart plugs that turn on as soon as it is dark and turn off on their own, making me feel like a regular Clark Griswold from Christmas vacation. And we just moved into a house with a fireplace, and I've been lighting that thing virtually every night since it got chilly enough, making me feel like I live in Kate Winslet's house in the holiday. (laughs) So basically, I'm in Christmas mode right now. Now, why is this a confession? (laughs) It sounds like a perfectly ordinary thing, maybe not, but a perfectly ordinary thing to be doing right now, especially when we already had snow on the ground. It's a confession, though, because such activities point to precisely the opposite of what the Advent season is meant to depict. So this is the first week of Advent. It's not uncommon in the Anglican tradition for folks to wait to put up their Christmas trees and decorations until the day before Christmas, because that's when the liturgical season of Christmas actually begins. Think here of the 12 days of Christmas, right? Now, I won't stop jamming to my playlist because I think we Anglicans shouldn't take ourselves too seriously, but the point remains. There is a special purpose to the season of Advent, the season that begins today. And that purpose stands in stark contrast to the jubilant at best and consumerist at worst ways to celebrate Christmas in the United States. Advent, as some branches of the Christian tradition describe it, is characterized by a bright sadness or by what St. John of Sinai calls joy grief. Advent is about the longing of a homesick heart, a heart that knows that things are not the way that they're supposed to be heart that knows that it is still very distant from home, even though home is close to both. It is a time when we deliberately remember that the creation still groans, that evil still endures, and that hardship still surrounds us. Tish Harrison Warren, uh, whose book you can check out, uh, who's a priest in our diocese, reminds us of the intentional darkness of Advent. She says this, For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, Advent is literally a dark time. Each night, the hours of darkness stretch longer. There's an innate and deeply human fear of encroaching darkness and longing for light to return. At Christmas, we celebrate how light entered into darkness. But first, Advent bids us to pause and look with complete honesty at the darkness. Advent asks us to name what is dark in the world and in our own lives and to invite the light of Christ into each shadowy corner. To practice Advent is to lean into a cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right. That's what Harrison says. So in contrast to the light, bright, and merry nature of the Christmas season in December, Advent is intended to strike a different note. In contrast to the silver and gold of Christmas, Advent is a very purple season. At the turn of the 20th century, the Spanish painter Pablo Picasso sank into a deep depression and began painting in deep and rich shades of melancholy blue, and this is known as his blue period. For the church, Advent is our purple period. Not a cheery lilac worn during Easter, but a deep purple resembling the depths of the nighttime. That's why I wore this jacket. I hope you appreciate that. That's a Just kidding. In fact, the nighttime imagery of Advent is precisely precisely what Advent is meant to invoke. On some years, Romans 13, 11 through 14 serves as the New Testament reading for the first week of Advent, and it perfectly captures the tone of the season. Paul, in that text, summons us to be people, quote, understanding the present time. It's in verse 11. What time is it? Though most people are tempted to shout joyfully, it's Christmas time. Christians are called to have a specific answer to that question. Paul tells us the answer in verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Christians are those people who live in this tension, a tension captured by Advent. We still exist in the dark, in the nighttime, in a world captured by sin and death, but we know and eagerly stretch ourselves towards the daytime. We are people who are tired from staying awake all night, watching for the dawn, knowing that it is just around the corner. And yet, as Harvey Dent says in the dark night, the night is darkest just before the dawn. The intention of such imagery is to create a longing in our hearts for a world awaiting the return of Jesus. Advent, a word that means to arrive or to come, is a time for Christians to await the comings, plural, of Jesus. Comings. Christ has come once, and we confess that he will come again. This means that Advent has a backward-looking and a forward-looking element. It looks backward. Christ has come, but it was only after a period of arduous waiting and anticipation And it has a forward-looking element. Christ will come again, but only after a similar period of arduous waiting and anticipation. Because there's an intentional separation between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, we now exist in a time of tension, ambiguity, and difficulty. The darkness that is approaching the dawn is generated by that distance between the comings of Jesus. So what time is it? It is that liturgical time between our confession that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, keep waiting for it, Christ will come again, all right? There is actually a perfect parable to capture that tension-filled time between the comings, and we can find it in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. The parable of the wheat and the tares, tares is just the word that means weeds, but it's hard to say wheat and weeds, you know? Anyway, Jesus tells us of a man who sowed good seed in his field. Think of this as the arrival of the kingdom of God. But an enemy in that same field sowed seeds of weeds so that when the wheat grew, so did the weeds. Some confusion arises amongst the man's servants. Didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? When they initiate an attempt to pull up the weeds, to separate out the good from the bad before the harvest comes, the man says not to do this. Such a separation cannot be made, he says, until the harvest. Then wheat will be separated from weeds. The harvest here is the second coming of Christ. It's only when that that time, turn my page too quickly, it's only then that the time in which we live ceases to be ambiguous, tumultuous, and mixed up. Before the harvest, before Christ's second coming, wheat and weeds continue to grow together. And the general confusion and stress of the servants, didn't you sow good seeds? What's all this mess? Will be our general confusion and stress. And one of the greatest preachers of our day, Fleming Rutledge, summarizes all that we've been considering so far in quite a memorable way. She says this, in a very deep sense, The entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent. Advent is normal. Between the first and second comings of the Lord, in the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way they ought to be. This is Advent, a time of tension, of longing, of crying out in the face of darkness. Advent is a time to be reminded that we are still in the nighttime, awaiting the dawn We are still awaiting the harvest of the Lord. We still groan under the pains of sin and death. We still feel the pangs of despair and hopelessness. We still see desolation and destitution. We still suffer. We still ask, God, where are you? It feels to me like you are so far away. We still say very often through tears and clenched fists, come Lord Jesus, Come quickly, I just can't take it anymore. In just a moment, we're going to see how our lectionary gives texts, the text, lectionary texts give voice to these realities. But I first want to highlight a point of personal practice and application for us before we do. Now, sometimes I get the impression that Christians need to rush to the positive. You know what I mean by that? When I get asked, "Hey, how are you?" And things are actually really crappy for me. Can I say crappy. Yeah, anyway. I'll, I'll, I'll probably respond, you know, things are hard, but fill in the blank. But God is good. But I can't complain. But at least Liverpool are still in the title race. And they, they won this morning, thankfully. Praise God. After such an interaction, I feel really dissatisfied with myself. Why couldn't I just say that things are hard? Why can't I just say that some days the lethargy is so heavy that I don't know how to do the next thing in front of me? Why can't I say that there are times where I feel like all of my efforts are futile and that it's really hard to care about anything at all? Maybe it's because I'm afraid of being seen as a bad Christian when I say such things, and I think I am. Maybe it's because it'll make the person I say such things to feel uncomfortable Maybe it's because there isn't much safety left in the world to speak such truths to. Whatever it may be, saying such things without the obligatory, but God is good, introduces a tension that most of us would want to avoid. Now, though this is normal, there's one glaring flaw with my approach. It's deeply and problematically untruthful. Rushing to the positive paints a picture of the world where everyone is fine where no one really needs Jesus to come back and to come back quickly. The fact of the matter is that normal for all of us, because we live in that tension between Christ's first and second comings, is necessarily a time of burden, grief, and weariness. In his recently titled book, On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living, Alan Noble writes this, I'm gonna read you a long quote. He says, get to know somebody really well And almost without fail, you will discover a person who routinely struggles to get out of bed in the morning. And not just because they're tired. They can't get out of bed because once they step foot on the floor, they will be launched into a day that is uncertain and lifeless and in some ways impossible. Here are some things you will see if you get to know people. You'll discover someone who suffers panic attacks every time there's another mass shooting. Someone who cannot stop obsessing how they may have failed as a parent. Someone who cannot eat or who cannot stop eating because of the guilt they feel from being sexually assaulted. Someone with a nearly debilitating mental disorder that only manifested after they were married and had kids and now their spouse seriously considers divorce on an almost monthly basis. Or someone who is stuck in the habit of living even though they feel terribly alone and bored. None of these scenarios is unusual. Despite the comforts of contemporary life and its promises of even greater peace and self-mastery, life is terribly hard. A comfortable, pleasant life isn't normal. And while we may hesitate to call getting out of bed courageous, it is undeniably true that day-to-day life demands a great deal of courage. Thus noble. This is the Christian's normal, a persistent and enduring struggle to get out of bed. Though we have all kinds of creative ways to distract ourselves from the darkness that surrounds us from without and engulfs us from within, it remains true that this life is one of massive difficulty and sorrow. I found Pascal's imagery for this life particularly gripping. I almost cut this out of my sermon. So if it's too bleak, like I'm I'm sorry. I, I almost didn't make it. But here's what Pascal says. He's a 16th century saint. what He says, imagine a number of people in chains all under the sentence of death, some of whom are each day butchered in the sight of others. Those remaining see their own condition and that of their fellows and looking at each other with grief and despair await their turn. This is an image of the human condition. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we set the distractions aside, if we turn off the playlist, if we forget our busyness for just a moment, we're faced with this painful but true fact. This is a very, very difficult life, one where darkness shades much of what we do, like a sun that sets far too early in the day. The point is this. Advent is a liturgical time to be painfully, perhaps brutally honest about the darkness of this life under the conditions of sin. Advent begins in the dark, writes Fleming Rutledge making it the season of the wrath of God. (laughs) She continues this, like this, The authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false." That's Rutledge. Advent is the time to appreciate the deep purple backdrop so that in a few weeks the stars can shine. It is a time to confess truly that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. That right now we sigh and groan and lament. And the whole time we ask God, how much longer, God? I can't take it anymore. Why do we keep why do you keep hiding yourself from me? Why do I wake up and still feel tired? Why do my kids feel so distant? Why does church feel so hard? Why is my trust violated so frequently? Why don't you make things right? That's okay to do. That's what Advent is for. Now, I have a reputation amongst my friends for being a bit of an Eeyore. So bear with me. I don't know who, it's probably a bad idea to give me week one of Advent. (laughs) The thing is this, Our Advent texts have precisely this tone of darkness. Our Isaiah passage is one of longing and divine absence. Isaiah calls to God and asks God to come down. We should hear a longing for God's incarnation to be with us. But Isaiah only feels divine absence. He longs for God to do something spectacular, and he's assured that God is the only one who can do something spectacular, the only one who can actually help. And yet, because sin continues to reign, because we're all unclean and incapable of righteousness, we are left in tension. Isaiah says, how then can we be saved? Like, let that question sit with you for a minute. How can we be saved given the darkness? Is it even possible? Instead of salvation, we experience decay. We shrivel up like a leaf, says Isaiah, under our sin. And so Isaiah pleads with God, wrestles with God, confesses his trust in God, asks God not to be angry. And though he knows God to be fatherly, the one who made us with God's own hands, he still experiences the things that belong to God as wastelands, places where God watches on in silence. Psalm 80 doesn't lighten up in any way. The psalmist, while knowing that God is Israel's shepherd, pleads and entreats God to, quote, come and save us. We're in trouble, God. We're really struggling. Where are you? In verse four, we hear a refrain that is so common in the psalms. How long? How much longer? How much longer will we have to put up with this? Then in verse five, we have an image that would make even Pascal blush. You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. The image here is of someone whose eyes are wasted with tears. Someone who feels derided, emptied out, ravaged, and desolate. Rather than a plant that flourishes at the consistent care of a loving gardener, the psalmist feels like a plant that has been withered and burned. It is a psalm of desperation, reaching for God and yet unable to extend one's fingertips to reach the ledge. So what are we to do when faced with such an overwhelming darkness? The answer here, of course, is to remember that Jesus has come, that a light has shone into the world to illuminate the bleakness. This is all true. It is true that even when God feels absent, he is present. This is testified to by the fact that the psalmist isn't telling his friend about his loneliness, he's telling God. There's an irony of grace here. God has made uh, himself available to our complaints and to our grief, even when it seems like our fellow Christians want to rush toward positivity. God is still available. This divine absence allows for us to shout as loudly as we feel like shouting dwelling in the negativity for as long as we need to. These are dark days, the night is not yet over. The Christian virtue to practice here is watchfulness. As we ask ourselves, where is God? We also take on the posture commended to us in the gospel reading. Be on guard, be alert, keep watch, keep looking for God because he's right around the corner. Grace is coming and it will shatter the darkness. And as we wait, says First Corinthians, we know that we will be kept firm by the very God for whom we wait. So we're entering into the season of Advent. And throughout this sermon, I've been trying to introduce an intentional tension. You're going out into a celebratory world. Lights will be flashing, gifts will be bought. And yes, I will continue to listen to my insanely long playlist. But the caution of Advent is this. Don't let these things become distractions from the things God intends to remind us of during the season. We must look into the darkness. We must know what time it is. If we don't, we will have a serious issue with darkness denial. We would be like people who are trying to suntan at 3 a.m., We begin to expect that our jobs, our church, our ministries, our partners, our children, our friends, all conform to a pattern of life that is simply unavailable before the harvest, before the coming of the dawn, that will only breed loathing because they will disappoint us. Advent is our annual reminder that this life is a life of sadness, that we are still in our purple era. But hold tight, grace is coming. And in the meantime, let us be merciful to one another, knowing that these times are hard, and that each of us requires a patient gentleness. Only then can we stay alert together, looking for a Lord who is just around the corner. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.